You're listening to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show, a podcast that discusses the intricacies of real estate investing with your host, Marcus E. Maloney. Marcus is a real estate investor best known for being the equity king. He's been awarded that moniker because he and his team find amazing real estate deals. He will be talking with investors who have done some transformational things in the real estate industry. They'll discuss their process, their strategies, and how their investments transform their lives and the communities they invest in. We welcome you to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show. So we moved in and out of houses that we owned or rented or stuff. I had a little bit of an exposure to real estate. So I thought, well, this could be something that I could build over time. Keep in mind, I started out with this this business at 44. So okay. I didn't think I'm going to retire in 10 years or anything like that. So I thought, okay, if I get myself and put in a disciplined way money aside and purchase real estate, that I should be able to build a portfolio over time that sustains me. And it was a little bit amateurish at the beginning, but I got more and more interested, more and more fascinated. And like you guys say, we love equity. Right? Yep, so yep. I, I love equity too. The We Love Equity Show is brought to you by Azria, widely recognized as an outstanding resource for real estate investors with exceptional education, networking, and support, along with profit-enhancing benefits and all aspects of real estate investing. Visit Azria at www.azria.org. That's visit Azria at www.azria.org. Hello, We Love Equity family. How are you guys doing today, this evening, or whatever time it may be that you're listening to the show? On today, I want to introduce you to someone who has a very, very unique story, and it ties into with consulting, coaching, and also retirement planning in real estate. So, Make sure you buckle up, grab your pen, grab your paper, grab your iPad so you can take some detailed notes because we have Dr. Axel on today and he'll be introducing some things to you and he'll be giving you some background and regards to retirement planning as a real estate investor and as an entrepreneur. So Dr. W, Dr. Axel, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great, Marcus. Thank you for having me. Great, great, great. So we have you here today. We're going to lock you in. We're going to ask you tons of questions. And please feel free to give us all the feedback that you want, because we have thousands of listeners that really need to hear from your um, guidance. So give us a little background about you. Off air, me and you, we were talking about your, your story. So kind of introduce us to you, Dr. Axel. Yeah, thank you, Marcus. Well, like I said, before we started officially recording, my family and I came over here to the United States 26 years ago from Germany with the Air Force because a lot of people don't know, but there is an exchange program where I basically took the job of an Air Force officer of the U.S. Air Force flying F-111s and organizing the squadron. And he took my job, which was flying tornadoes and organizing a flight school. So that was originally planned to be for three years. And then towards the end of that period of time, and we were already thinking, okay, we're going to go back to Germany. We wonder where we're going to be and stuff like that. The government said, no, no, not so fast. We have signed a contract between the German government and the U.S. government to build a flight training center where we can train and learn 
how to operate jets together in the United States. And since you are relatively close, we would like you to be the program manager. And wow. I'm like, uh, oh, really? Okay, so where is this? You know, and right, right. Okay. Out that that was Holloman Air Force Base, which uh, became known later as the home of the stealth fighter. So okay. I was one of the very privileged people who was basically in the process while the stealth fighters were still operating there with the squadron. Everything was pretty secret, and we were in the process of working with the U.S. Air Force team to build this training center and ultimately bring 42 of our tornadoes jets over and fly together and train together and so forth. So that took six years. And if you take the other uh, time together with that, it basically ended up getting me so close to my retirement date from the Air Force that the question really was, are we going to stay or are we going to go back to, the, to Germany? And I put out some feelers uh, that I would be interested to stay with the family if somebody would sponsor us for a green card because that was the only real option. You know, you need to be able to work right. to stay. And luckily, we found a company that uh, sponsored us. And so here we are, 26 years later, still here. <laughs> okay, so you came from Germany on a work program with the with the Air Force right. in Germany. And you guys partnered up with the United States Air Force for some training program. And now you've been here for 26 years, basically. Right, exactly. Yeah, my daughter, basically, we, she was just in first grade, finished first grade when we came here. And she's never seen another German school. She went uh, to middle school and high school and uh, UCSB and got her bachelor's degree. So there's a funny little story about that is when she was in middle school and because she basically learned English so early and you've probably seen this Marcus when kids learn a foreign language when they're like be younger than 10 years old they learn it without an accent it happens almost it feels like overnight and that yeah. was the case for her as well so you have these kids need vaccinations and stuff like that. So one day my uh, wife had made an appointment with the doctor and picked up my daughter at 10 a.m. in the morning while she was already in school, picked her up, brought her back. And then when she came home, she said, I have to tell you, this was really a little strange because all my classmates asked me why I would be picked up at 10 in the morning by this German lady. <laughs> nobody had understood or realized yeah. after that morning and she had been going there for like a year or something. wow nobody realized that she was german because you know she spoke fluent english no accent no nothing and she's also blonde <laughs> so, okay so she, so she, she looked assimilated like a, right in like a, like a regular person sounded right behaved right understood the the lingo and she also had that annoying thing that little kids have where every other word is like like yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that was a funny little story when she went in school and they said why did this german lady and she said oh that's my mom <laughs> so tell me about tell me about that process so you and your family you guys are ready to move back to germany and you said i want to throw some feelers out why did you decide to want to stay here in the u.s and then tell us about that process about when you found that sponsor to sponsor you for you to stay here in the U.S.? 
Yeah, so like I said, my job in, in the years before I retired was to be the senior program manager for the development of this flight training center. And it included things like always, and I didn't do these things myself. I had people working for me, but still we had to build infrastructure. It needed computer systems. It needed utilities. It needed software. It needed literally everything that if you were tomorrow to say, okay, I want to start a whole new facility for something. It needed literally all these pieces and I got involved with all these organizations because as you can imagine, everybody wanted to have this kind of a government contract, right? Where you right. whatever you can imagine from the furniture to the walls, to the lighting, anything and everything was basically a government Painful. project. Okay. So all kinds of companies bid on it and several got pretty substantial contracts and a lot of these things like installing the um, IT system and the software specifically for flight training operations. It's not something like you installing Windows 10 on your laptop that <laughs> those things take quite a bit of time and are pretty custom. So a bunch of the companies had been involved with me as the leader basically for probably a year and a half. And so when I told them, hey, you have that regular conversation, hey, what's coming up for you next and so forth. And I said, well, next year I'm going to retire if I can find somebody who is sponsoring a green card. Several said, oh yeah, yeah, we would be interested. And then wow. like I told you before, there was this one guy who didn't necessarily immediately said we would spend, sponsor you. He said, well, why don't you just come out and visit our facility? Right. And I said, oh, yeah, OK, I, I grab a jet and fly over because that's kind of typically what we did, combine it with a training session for a student. And he okay. said, oh, no, no, I want you to bring your family. I said, OK, well, so then he said, OK, I sent you the tickets. You just get on the plane and, and then you come over for the weekend. We pick you up on Friday. We put you in a hotel. And I thought, wow, that is actually pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. But it ends up being a software company in Santa Barbara. He wines and dines us, never talks about the green card the whole weekend. And then on Sunday, he walks us out to the pier. Anybody who's ever seen pictures of, of Santa Barbara and has this beautiful pier with some little shops and restaurants at the end. And so we're walking further and further and further to the end there towards the edge. And my wife and my daughter drop back a little bit. And he says, so tell me, how do your wife and your daughter like Santa Barbara? Oh, yeah. He and was I was hooking like, you. you. Because they were like fascinated. They had not seen something that beautiful, you know, and been treated that well. So he said, so you think if we were sponsoring, you would want to work for us? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure you, you had an immediate yes to that. You know, the wife and the daughter loved Santa Monica and Santa yeah, Barbara. Absolutely. So, And I mean, it's not that I didn't like it either. The one thing as a good German, I immediately saw this is a freaking expensive place. <laughs> place to live. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, so yeah, so we he ultimately won won that that game in if you want to. And but he I like I said, you know, I'm what I'm very grateful for is that he lived up to his promises, right? He said, I want you to stay at least three years so we can sponsor you and don't get into trouble or anything like that. And he did, he sponsored us and, and I feel I held up my end of the bargain because when I started, the area that I was responsible for had about 10% of the business and I brought it up to about 40% of revenue was in my wow. area. So wow. yeah, and then, you know, having experience working in, in the free world, in the free industry versus the military, that really 
gave me the confidence to start my own business in 2005. Okay. So you, you actually, cause you said something, you said that he invited you over to California and you was like, okay, we'll just hop in a jet and fly on over. Not everybody can do that. So you actually fly jets? Yeah, absolutely. I was first um, trained as a, just to learn how to be an, a military jet aviator. And then I became a flight instructor and ultimately a test aviator. And that combination was then interesting. That's part of the reason why the US military said we would like to have an exchange with this guy because I was working for the details. I uh, hope your audience is okay with me saying the detail was that mm -hmm. I worked in jet avionics. And so basically all the electronic systems, especially the ones that protect the plane. And there is naturally, I mean, everybody, every time some country or some ally does something new or tries something new. And the United States at the time had a plane uh, that was based on a F-4 Phantom, a really old plane that came out the Vietnam War time. And Germany had decided that that wasn't really an option in the modern European theater and developed based on a, a, a fundamental plane called the Tornado, developed an electronic warfare version of it. And that okay. was what I was involved with testing, right? So all the black boxes and all this stuff was was very, very advanced. And you may have, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, heard that by now the United States has actually converted a version of the F-18 to call it the EF-18, which is basically the electronic version of the F-18 fighter jet. Wow. Some of that collaboration was happening at the time because, as you can imagine, these planes don't just pop up on the parking lot, so it takes a lot. Right. <laughs> so there was a lot of interest in... Part of the reason why myself and my family even considered doing this exchange thing was because as my job in test flying, I had to come over here to these American military equipment manufacturers to learn how these boxes work because you have to keep in, in mind at the time when, when the engineers or a company creates a system like that, until the regular user can use it, it's a little bit similar to, you know, a company wants to come out with a new car. They always make some prototypes first. Right. And then a very limited number of people get to test these prototypes to find out how does it operate? How do these new systems integrate? You might remember when they started putting navigation systems in cars. Mm -hmm. Right. And initially they weren't a little, they were a little clunky and there were a lot of buttons to push and stuff to get anything out of it. And then they sounded kind of weird. So that state is basically where I got involved to visit these companies, get training from the actual engineers that build these boxes and then take them back to Germany and integrate them into the jet and then fly the jets to see does it really work? Can a normal operator handle this? Or is it so complicated or so hard to understand that you need to make changes to make it work? Right? Gotcha. That was basically my job. And in the process of doing that, you can imagine anybody who, who is interested in that industry said, hey, this guy got a lot of experience with this integration. Wouldn't it be nice if he could come over and, you know, we can exchange a little bit without having to fly back and forth every so often, right? And Okay. That's how we ended up actually coming to the U.S. It wasn't just, oh, I wish I could just fly a little bit in the U.S. for a few years, right? There needed to be a, a right. good, you know. There was a purpose. There was a plan behind everything. Right. And you ended right. up in California at the end of right. the day. 
So tell us, Dr. Axel, you were doing all of this for the military and then you had started your coaching and consulting business. Why did you decide to get into real estate? What was your aim behind that? Well, the the first aspect of it was in the military, you never really worry about having money because you don't really have to make the assumption that the government wouldn't pay, whether it's your monthly pay or your pension or stuff like that. But I realized very quickly when I started my business, I wouldn't want to do this forever. And I told you before we went live, for me, I distinguish between what most people say business and I distinguish it to a practice. For me, a business is something that either produces a product or a service. And if you build it to a certain extent, it has brand recognition, it has customers who keep reordering and stuff like that. So that entity can be sold and somebody else can, can keep running it, right? Like a lot of people that are super successful say, I built my business to the point that it runs by itself and I don't need to be there every day anymore. Mm -hmm. What I basically did because of the consulting and the specialty in consulting that I'm covering and the coaching, it's more a practice. And I liken it to like your dentist practice. If the dentist says I retire, typically, yes, there might be somebody who takes it over, but they need to rebuild it because the patients have a relationship to that person, right? Exactly. For me, it was always pretty clear that my practice in coaching and consulting, and I tried, believe me, I tried to, you know, say, hey, I have other good coaches, I have other good consultants who can do same or better than me. And the clients typically said, yeah, that's good. And we believe you, but we still want you. We still want you. (laughs) That's the reason why we're calling you. Yeah. And so that meant pretty quickly, I needed to come up with a plan. How do I ever basically, I don't want to work for the rest of my life. How do I ever retire? And a little point about that is I started, as you said, the business in 2005. So in 2003, we had this massive dot-com crash where like stock, the stock market crashed by like, I think 50% or so overnight almost. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was toxic. I no, don't want right. to go there. And I started looking around and, and I had in the military, the different, we moved 11 times during my military time. So we moved in and out of houses that we owned or rented or stuff. I had a little bit of an exposure to real estate. So I thought, well, this could be something that I could build over time. Keep in mind, I started out with this this business at 44. So okay. I didn't think I'm going to retire in 10 years or anything like that. So I thought, okay, if I get myself and put in a disciplined way money aside and purchase real estate, that I should be able to build a portfolio over time that sustains me. And it was a little bit amateurish at the beginning, but I got more and more interested, more and more fascinated. And like you guys say, we love equity. Right? Yep, so yep. I, I love equity too and, and learned more about it and developed, as you said, you know, I, we were and we are still living in California. So it became very quickly, very clear. This is not the place to invest for performance. So I needed Absolutely. to come up with a strategy that actually allows for performing investments. And that's how the strategy came together. And a few years ago, when I kept telling people, just friends, like if you and I were were friends and we meet for for dinner or going out to the beach or something, hanging out, people say, hey, you know, what are you up to? What's going on? And here and there, I said, oh, yeah, I'm working on this new deal. I'm adding another property to my portfolio. People kind of, their ears perked up and they said, you know, that's interesting. And ultimately, more and more people said, you know, you're doing a, a thing that a lot of people probably don't know about. 
maybe you should put something out about that. And that's how our idea Wealth Grower website and all that other social media stuff actually started by people saying, hey, you know, would Share. you be willing to put some out? And naturally, I'm also will, uh, admitting, because I always did coaching and consulting, there is a little bit of a similarity, right? Like you're coaching somebody gotcha. for business. It's kind of a form of coaching and mentoring when you help people to develop their own real estate portfolio. So let's let's talk about that first opportunity that you had, Dr. Axel. So the first deal that you did, the first property that you had in your portfolio, kind of walk us through that. Was it a primary residence? And then with the military, you moved and you said, let's run it out. How did all of that transpire? Yeah, so it was basically a, a primary residence in Santa Fe in New Mexico. And it was at the edge of kind of like a new development area and we lived in it ourselves while we were stationed in New Mexico. And then, like I told you the story with going to California. California. And at the time, the market wasn't really particularly great. And one thing that I didn't know at the time, but your audience and you are probably familiar with it, uh, is something that some people call the dance. And I, I had never been invited to the dance, meaning, gotcha. you know, <laughs> I had become a business owner, as I mentioned. And when I said, okay, well, what can we do with this property? People said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, uh, you're not an employee. You are a business owner. And as a business owner, the banks treat you completely different. Different. Like for years, I was saying, I would be better off if I'm a manager of a McDonald's than a successful consultant because the banks would treat me a little easier, right? Like mm -hmm. they other than blood and DNA samples, I pretty much had to provide everything and anything I've ever done in my life to prove that I'm worthy for a mortgage, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. So I call that on somebody actually told me that they called it a dance and I thought that was a good thing. And, and by the way, if your audience members ask, why is it a dance? If you think about it, as a business owner, you tell your CPA or tax preparer, make it so that I don't have to pay or as little taxes as possible. Yep. So now you have this beautiful tax return that says basically Marcus and Axel were super successful, but in a way that they don't have to pay barely any taxes. And then you go to a bank and say, hey, guys, I want a mortgage. And they say, send me your tax return. You send it to them and say, you make no money. Yeah, you make no money. And that, that, like you said, that is the dance. And that's one of the things that as entrepreneurs and business owners we have to struggle with is, okay, we make the money, but we don't want to show how much money we make on our tax returns because we don't want to pay the taxes. But at the end of the day, when you're going to purchase something, that's the first thing they ask. Well, how much money do you make? Prove it to me by showing me your W-2. And on your W-2, you make $20,000, $30,000 because you want to pay as less taxes as possible. So, guys, yeah. that's a part of the dance. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you described it much better than I did. So, yeah, exactly. That that was basically new to me. And, and so back to that property, when I realized that, it basically meant for me, well, we need to keep it for a while. And and the beautiful thing was that there was a lot of demand in, in rentals. So we never really had any trouble having it rented. We found a really good, I did actually, that was my first foray into what do you do right and what do you do wrong in real estate investing was I actually understood more subconsciously, I guess, that you want to ask around and find out. And this, this was why we were still living there and we had made up our mind, okay, we're going to keep the house and rent it. I started asking around in the community, 
which is the best property management company in town. Okay. Before we go there, doctor, because I know some people probably have some questions in regards to the whole dance factor that we talked about. So what did you have to provide? If you can remember, what were some of the things that you had to provide for the bank in order to, to prove that, yes, my tax returns show one thing, but I am actually profitable. So what were some of the things that you had to provide to the bank? Because I get this question all the time. Yeah, well, so for one, they said the way they look at income is the average of the last two or three years, rather than somebody who is employed where you only need to show the last three months or maybe six months of your pay stubs. Mm-hmm. So that meant for me going forward, and, and I mean, I got kind of caught flat-footed because I wasn't aware, right? I never really paid attention. I only said, so the CPA make it as low as possible. So from that point on, we did two things. Number one, pay much more attention to what is actually going into your tax return. And the other thing what we did immediately is I hired myself in my company as an employee, Okay. Right. So now I had basically an official job. We paid Social Security, FICA, all that stuff. So yes, I'm still a business owner. And because it is an S corporation, it flows through to the private side, what the business does. But I'm also an employee. So as kind of like a, a go-between, I could show like six months later, hey, I'm making money in the, at this level. And funny enough for the dance, right? That money that my company paid me as an employee became an expense for the company. For the company, right. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like a little bit of the, you you chuckle about that a little bit. But so that was one reaction, get myself hired in the company, make sure that the revenue and and what I'm being paid to myself is, is reasonable in a relationship so that I can show it's not the business makes no money, but the business makes no money because it paid me. That made a big difference. Uh, The other thing that is also important is you want to be able to support other things. So I had never really even thought about the fact that I have my military pension. And even to the day that we ultimately sold the property and then got into really investing out of state, which is what we're doing now for the last 10, 15 years or so, I had never had that on my radar because for me, it wasn't really income in the traditional sense, right? You work and then you get money. This was just money that was coming in. So that was ultimately becoming somewhat of a saving grace until the business grew large enough so that, you know, the bank didn't really need any supporting income anymore. But so hiring myself and also pulling any other things like existing pensions, any kind of existing other money that comes in. We had some savings account that we didn't really feel because they had originally only asked for checking accounts. So we showed what we had in the savings account. And one thing that helped, even though I don't know if this would still work today, but at the time, one thing we did is I wrote letters to every credit card and any and everybody that I ever had done business with in any sense and said, can you please write something like a few lines that I never missed a payment. Right. Verification, just saying, hey, I am a, I'm a strong steward of what was lent to me as far as on my credit cards and I yeah. paid them did, diligently. Yeah. And that's Great. actually, I mean, if, if you want to point out one thing that I find sometimes it, 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 it rubs me the wrong way, right? Like I, I literally went into the bank and, and the guys saw that I had served for 22 years in the Air Force. The first thing they said, thank you for your service. And I was so pissed at the end of the day that I said, I can't thank you for your service by the way you treat me. Yeah. Because yeah. that, you know, that's, 
I think it needs to be heartfelt. I really appreciate when people say that, but I want their actions to match because mm -hmm. my actions match. I, I've, even though I'm retired now for a long time, I still live by the code that we had learned as officers how to treat people, how to handle situations, how to be trustworthy, how to actually pay our bills, how to be responsible, disciplined, yep. all that stuff. So people that do business with me, they can depend on that. But I think all of us, we are all entitled to be treated that way, right? And so I, I wanted to mean something, you know, that's maybe a little bit tangent here, but for me, that's always been important. You know? No, that is important because a lot of people say that, you know, thank you for your service, but they're not, they really don't know what that service really entails. I've never been in the military, but I do have a military family background and I understand the commitment that it takes in order to live, you know, as a duty officer, because like you said, you have to move 11 times. You and your family have to move 11 times. Not many people will be willing to do that. You know, that's uprooting yeah, exactly. your wife, uprooting your kids, moving around, you know, the country. And then for you moving out of the country. So that's completely, completely uh, a sacrifice that you have to make. So no, absolutely. And I mean, it's not fun to be shot at either. I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> So, Dr. Axelrod, so tell me, so you had this property in New Mexico that you owned and you moved to California. How did you, we were talking about the property manager. How did you find that property manager and what all services did they provide for you? Yeah, so like I said, I was smart enough more subconsciously than really based on knowledge or experience to ask around which one is the best property management organization in town. And everybody said these are, but they are a little more expensive. And for me, I thought, okay, it's probably worth it. And yep. it was. I mean, they made sure that the rent was collected. We never missed a rent payment. When there was a repair, they really did what a lot of promise, but don't do. I can tell you by personal experience by now over many years, they literally called and said, okay, here's something that probably costs more than two or 300 bucks. And who do you want us to send? And they had a little team of their own for a little more mundane stuff that they could handle. They basically already advertised when they knew that a lease agreement came to an end and the tenant indicated that they would move out. They already started advertising in their network that gotcha. this property will be ready. So the longest in all these years that we rented the place that it was empty was eight days. Wow. Right. And so that, those are some of the indications. They sent the monthly report. They generated an annual report. They had everything really broken down very nicely. My wife normally does the bookkeeping. In this case, it was literally just putting the stuff in a, in a binder, right? It was perfectly prepared. No issues whatsoever. Literally, I mean, poster child for, for great property management. And I have to say at the very end, because your original question was, so how did you get into it? And what was interesting and was a really important lesson for me to learn that they called me and said, we think you should talk to one of our agents because they both had an agency, a real estate agency and the property management. Okay. And so I called one of their agents and said, hey, our PM said we should call to, uh, talk to you. What do you think is the reason? And she says, well, tell me the address. I tell her the address and she's, oh, I know. And so <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> and she said, oh, well, you probably don't know because you probably haven't been back here for a while, but the city actually bought the built the connecting road between your neighborhood and the main Plain kind of like interstate like thing that uh, the ring around the city right 
And that is the road, and you may have heard about Los Alamos National Laboratories, which is one of the biggest uh, employers in the area. In the area. And a lot of people that worked or are working for Los Alamos, they never considered our neighborhood because it was so hard to get to. You had to kind of drive 12 minutes in a circle to get to it. And when the city connected our neighborhood to that main thoroughfare, all kinds of people said, oh, that... I've always liked to live there, but I couldn't because of the drive. And it popped the prices for the houses by almost $100,000 overnight. Wow. And now you have to keep in mind, this is not California. These are like $200,000 right, right. suddenly went up to $300,000. And so she said, yeah, that if you actually consider selling it, this would be probably a perfect time. I have so much demand you wouldn't even believe in. And so... I talked to my wife, I'm saying, so what do you think we could get for it? And she and I, we land, you know, like when you talk about we landed, maybe 270, 275. I said, oh yeah, that's how, that would be nice. And so I call her back and say, okay, yeah, we, we would consider, what do you think you can get? She said, 290. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> sold, sold, <laughs> so, sold, yeah. sold, sold, right. sold. <laughs> And so that's basically um, how that ended up. And we made a nice profit. And then we learned what the 1031 exchanges and all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm assuming when you did the sale, you sold it, you did a 1031 exchange. Sell, sell, sell. So tell us, just give us a brief overview for those who don't know, what's the 1031 exchange? So what did you do with the money from that property that you sold? Right. Well, so since we were no longer living in the property ourselves, I and mean, just to, I think it, it's important to frame this. If you own a property, yep. you live in it yourself, and, and it has increased substantially in value, the government allows you to make a substantial bunch, I think something like five, six dollars $600,000 in, in profit, and you don't have to pay taxes on it. Absolutely. But if it's an investment property, meaning like you're not living there, other, you rent it to other people, you normally would have to pay capital gains tax on the profit. So the, the number that you have in between what you paid for it and what you sold it for, and on top of that, and a lot of people forget that, is over the years that you own it as an investment property, you also depreciate it. So you get a little bit of a tax benefit every year for 27 and a half years. So those two things, the capital gains and that little tax benefit that you got every year, those two things together, you would normally have to pay as taxes. Except, and the government says, well, we want the public, meaning you and me, Marcus, mm -hmm. um, to continue to provide housing to the public. And if you're willing to take one property and exchange it for something similar, either exactly mm -hmm. the same or something similar, and there are two rules within the 1031 that apply there, then you can delay the payment of this capital gains tax. And if you really go all the way, you could theoretically say, okay, so now I exchange for another house in another city similar, don't pay taxes, keep that for five years, buy another one and keep doing that. And you can do this all the way until you die. And then there is a particular adjustment that we don't have to go into right now. Right. So theoretically, you could be an investor in real estate, do 1031 exchanges and never really having to pay the capital Those gains tax. So that's basically the thing. Now, the other part about it is I had in the meantime understood that I wanted to have a strategy that is focused on performance. So instead of just going one for one, there is a rule in 1031 exchanges that's called the 200% rule. So you can exchange 
from that one single house that we had in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, into multiple other properties, as long as the value of these properties is not more than 200% or twice yeah. as much as the place that you sold. So, so guys, Dr. Axel definitely put, you put all of that in context. So just a quick little disclaimer, we're not CPAs. So talk to your accountant about this 1031 exchange, especially if you have rental properties right now in this market, it's a seller's market. So if you're considering selling some of your rental properties, ask your accountant about the 1031 exchange. That way you don't have to pay those capital gains uh, taxes on that money earned. So Dr. Axel, what we're going to do, we're going to take a brief break, hear a word from my sponsors. And when we come back, we want to talk about how you're investing out of state because you said you live in California and you definitely don't get the profits in California as you would elsewhere when you're buying rental property. So we want to talk about that when we come back. So let's take a brief break, hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back with Dr. Axel. PropString is the industry's number one tool for locating distressed properties and connecting with highly motivated sellers. With 100% coverage across the U.S., PropStream provides a deep dive into any property's specific details, making it easy to generate lists of distressed properties and contact to the owners. No other product or service can compare. Gain access to MLS property details like expired listings. You can pull accurate comps, even sale prices in non-disclosure states. This information is typically reserved for licensed real estate professionals, but is also available to you in PropStream. Gain access to unlimited nationwide property search, comparable home sales, targeted marketing lists, and owner contact lookup, built-in marketing tools, hundreds of filters to search and sort leads. Start your free seven-day trial now by going to crowd.propstreampro.com slash we love it. Okay, guys, welcome back. We have Dr. Axel here based out of California, and we are talking about a myriad of things. We're talking about his background and the military. We're talking about 1031 exchanges. Now we want to focus on investing out of state because as you all know, especially if you live along the coastlines, you know, California, Seattle, Portland, New York, Florida, all along the coastlines, even us in Phoenix, the property values has shot up so tremendously where it's hard to find value as a landlord in these markets. So one of the things that we're doing is we're looking to the heartland or to some other area where we can purchase a property and get a substantial increase, I would say, for our dollars spent on our on our rental portfolio. So that's what Dr. Axel is going to share with us on today right now is, Dr., what you live in California, and it doesn't make sense, you know, to buy a house in California and try and rent it out, correct? Right. Okay, so what was your strategy? Because you wanted to continue being a real estate investor. You had this money, this 1031 exchange money that you needed to do something with. What did you do? Tell us your strategy. Right, so the strategy is revolving around something I call the time freedom point. And what I mean by time freedom point is a point in the future somewhere on the calendar where you say, I can generate enough passive income so I no longer have to exchange time for money. 
right? And so for me, that meant I have a little bit of pension money coming in from my military service. So how much do I need to add to that so that it is my free choice if I want to still do consulting, if I still want to help other people mentoring them in investing in real estate, or if I want to go out in my garden and, and grow zucchinis or something like that. Yep. Right? So having that freedom, that doesn't mean I don't like my work or I hate my job or anything like that. But to be able to make that decision, how much or how little do I want to work, that's that time freedom point. And that point on the calendar is associated with a certain number. So I figured out, okay, how much, I asked my wife, how much are we spending every month on all the different things on food and car and insurance and eating out, you name it, mm -hmm. everything that comes in. And we added that all together and said, okay, so that's the number. If we can get passive income, in my case, combination of military pension plus passive income to match or slightly exceed that number, then I have that freedom. And now then the question became, okay, so how do we get that passive income? Get and that has to do, in my view, it starts out with performance. So when people say, well, if you invest in real estate, what's the difference between doing it in, let's say, Cleveland, Ohio, or somewhere in the heartland, as you call it, versus mm -hmm. California? The most drastic way to express that and make it really plastic. In my area here around San Diego, where I live now, the average house price is $650,000. So even if I were to assume I could come up with a 20% down payment, meaning $130,000, which just happened to lay around, right? Yeah. So if I had that and were to make the down payment, performance by my definition means I would have to get $6,500 in rent every month or 1% mm -hmm. of the purchase price. Yep, 1% rule, guys. You know, if somebody can afford... 6500 in rent, they can probably afford a house themselves. To buy. Right? Buy. So the reality is what I would probably be able to get is somewhere between 3000 3500 And people express that to say the performance with that 3000 to 3500 for a $650,000 house is around 0.5%. Mm -hmm. What I'm looking for and what I'm always advising my coaches and mentees is we want to look for 1%. And some people, just as a caveat here, some people say, why not 2%? 1%, I have found, is the sweet spot. If you go try to go beyond that, you end up in really, excuse my friend, shitty neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah terrible neighborhoods. Places, high crime rate, ghetto-type stuff. And so that's not for me. And if you want to go significantly below the 1%, then you don't have the performance. So... That's one thing. The 1% is the performance. And then it's a matter of how do I get my foot in the door? And I think that's super important for your audience too. Right? $130,000 here in my area, nobody, I don't know anybody who has that laying around, myself included. Right. But I do can generate over time through my consulting business or anybody else who has a job and is disciplined in saving, you can get anywhere between sixteen dollars and $25,000 together every other year, let's say, mm -hmm. by, by disciplined saving. And that is the amount of money that gets you a house between eighty dollars and $150,000 in the heartland. And now if you just take the middle of that and say, okay, I buy a $100,000 house, three bedroom, two baths, nice little garage, a little bit of garden, anybody, I think, in a nice fully renovated house would be willing to pay a thousand bucks. Yep. So there's my 1%, right? So... The concept is find performing properties, performing meaning 1%, 
in good locations like B category type properties. And then the, the other part of the strategy that I found to be extremely important, and you touched on it when you asked me about the Tenafi property, and that is how do I find a partner to buy and, and maintain these properties with mm -hmm. where I have some good dependency between each other? And what I found, and I'm not saying this is the only solution, but what works for me and for our clients is to run, work with turnkey providers. But not just any, because there are hundreds out there that call themselves turnkey providers. The important thing for our strategy, out-of-state strategy to work, is the turnkey provider needs to find what I call the ugly duckling in the neighborhood, fully renovated, like new electrical, new pipes, mm -hmm. new kitchen, bathrooms, everything is anything conceivable is renovated, then put a price on it that is at or slightly below what it appraises for. Okay. Because they want to finance it. So it need if they just put an astronomical price and it doesn't appraise and it doesn't help me, help me either, right? So they find it, they renovate it, they put a fair price on it, I buy it from them. And here comes the most, most, most important thing. They are also the ones who manage that same property. And because of that, when you know, Marcus, if I know I'm fixing something for someone and I have to look after it when I gave it back to them, it's a totally different psychological dynamic than saying, okay, I'm a flipper, I flip a house, I see what I can get for it, and then somebody else is going to take care of it. Yeah, deal with the problems that may right, arise. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. So that's the important thing for the turnkey providers uh, I recommend, and I only have three. And if you really think about it, I have four properties with one, four properties with the other one, and I'm working on three other properties with the third one. That's a pretty nice diversified portfolio in three different locations in the heartland. Mm -hmm. And even if I were to say I want to add five more properties across these three providers, that's plenty. You don't need for each property a different provider. Besides Correct. the fact, in each case, because we have a little bit like a four or five house portfolio with each provider, there is also a better relationship. If you're like a one and done kind of uh, customer, it's different than adding to it. And so if you think about it every year or every other year, you buy one of those, right? Mm -hmm. And then you keep adding to your portfolio. Each one of those, because they perform, will also generate passive income. Gotcha. So let me ask you this, Dr. Axel, what markets are you in right now? So the one is, I call that West of Chicago. It's an area called the Quad Cities area. The yep, other one is, Quad Cities. Yeah, the other one is in Ohio. Okay. And the third one is in Alabama. In okay. Huntsville. I mean, as an Air Force guys, I have to have something in Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama. Gotcha. So <laughs> I know out of those cities, I know two out of the three. So Quad Cities, I'm actually from Chicago. I know the Quad Cities is not that far away. Great rental returns there where you can still buy properties, you know, significantly cheap. And I know Huntsville, Alabama. My daughter went to school down there. So definitely know what you're looking for. So let me ask you this. How did you find those providers? Because there are a lot of turnkey providers out there that say, you know, we can provide this solution for you because you're in California. I know what you're looking for. How did you decide on the turnkey providers that you chose? Well, one thing that I've learned, maybe it's a little bit in the German DNA is I was raised with a glass half empty. Mm-hmm. 
which I always say is a beautiful thing that for most Americans, the glass is half full. But when you get raised, the glass is half empty. You have this kind of almost genetic skepticism. Skepticism, yep. And, and what that also brings is to say, I don't want to just run into something because somebody says so. I want to have the confidence that I did at least some research, some finding out. And one of the things that actually for the first one in Ohio was literally listening to a podcast by Keith Weinhold, uh, Get Rich Education, and then listening to several more and, and finding out is Keith bringing in good guests and researching the guests. And there was one of the guests was the sales director for that turnkey provider. Okay. And Keith interviewed him just like you interview me. And he did a great interview and asked all the relevant questions that I would have asked. And there were probably some that I would have been not known to ask, but he knew. So that sounded all very good. And then I said, okay, so this is one that seems to hit every checkbox. Now let me do some research on them. I did. And this is where the DNA then really hits is I got on a plane and flew there and met them personally, looked at go. the property in different stages of renovation and stuff. Now, admittedly, this was before COVID where it was a little easier to do. Mm -hmm. right? But so I looked at every one of the properties I considered buying. I met the people. We are now at the point over the years where we exchange Christmas cards and, and birthday cards and gifts and stuff, right? So we built a relationship. Yep. But it all started with listening to a podcast, then researching the information in more depth and then go and visit them. There you go. So, so something so simple, guys, that Dr. Axel did. He, he got the information. The information came to him. And he started doing his due diligence. Okay, let me investigate. Let me find out about the podcast guest. Let me find out about the uh, podcast host. Let me make sure both are credible. And then let me do my due diligence about the market. And let's fly out there and look at it. You know, and that's what I tell people is you have to take time to do your own due diligence. My dad, he's he was from Central America, from Panama, and he had that same same aspect. The glass is always half empty. You know, you want to look at what's the worst case scenario and can you overcome that worst case scenario? So, Dr. Axel, you hit it right on the head. So, when you start looking at these different markets, how did you decide on the Quad Cities Huntsville, Alabama, and Ohio. I know you got the 1% rule. I know you believe in that. What else did you look at? So if someone that says, you know what, I live in, in Santa Monica and I have you know, $50,000, $60,000 that I can invest and I want to go in some of these cities in the heartland. And guys, the heartland is the Rust Belt. So Nebraska, Illinois, Indiana, Alabama, Tennessee, all, all in the middle of the country. What are some of the things that you would look for to decide on that market? For me, one of the terms in, in all of the things related to real estate, but even for business in general, one of the most important words I, I would say in my experience, and I hope I can convey that to your audience, is the word balance certain things need to be in balance. And so what, to answer your question, what I was looking at was the performance on the one hand and in the context of balance, the longevity of that performance. So if you look at those places like the Cleveland, Cincinnati, um, Dayton area or the Quad Cities area or the Huntsville area, there have been 
stock market crashes in 2000. There has been the financial crisis in 2008 through 10. There, even now, if you look at pandemic and all this kind of stuff, if you say, let me take the last 25, 30 years and look at an area that you have kind of narrowed down and say, how have they performed? Now, you mm -hmm. might say, I'm conservative in a sense, and, and I'm not ashamed of that. But for me, it wasn't had they one huge run-up at some point and then right. it moderated back down. What was more important for me as somebody, for myself and for our clients, I suggest we buy these properties for the purpose of making the passive income, reaching our time freedom point, which also means we want to keep them as long as we live, ideally. Right. And so then that means I have a longer time horizon and I want to see that over and, and history can be informing, even though it's not a, a guarantee. But if I can say the last 30 years, this has been a very steady market that has increased, let's say, by three, four, five percent every year for the last 30 years through all the ups and downs in the economy, technology, you name it, whatever happened, they have been steady as she goes. Well, mm -hmm. then it's reasonable to expect that they are not going to be completely thrown off kilter no matter what happens. And there are some other markets where you also find turnkey providers where their performance has only been there for the last five years. I don't want to say anything negative about uh, Kansas City, for example, but for the longest time, nobody had Kansas City on their radar. And then suddenly yeah. everybody started flocking onto it. And I'm, I know that they made really good deals there. I just don't know if they're going to last. Right. right. How Sustainability. Long it's a little bit like a frenzy sometimes, right? And I know that when I first started into this, Memphis was the hot market. And I have this kind of personal joke that I always say, I wonder when Memphis is going to run out of the 60s and 70s built properties for these 10 turnkey providers who all claim for the last 20 years that they're renovating 20, 30, 40 year old buildings. I mean, mm -hmm. how many could there have been in Memphis in the 60s? Right, right. Like, so at some point, it's just not credible anymore. So these things to put, and this brings me back to what I said, why the term balance is so important. What's the size of the place? It shouldn't be too tiny. How has it performed over a longer period of time? And I'm not looking for home runs. I'm looking for base hits. Yep. I, um, it's weird for a German to say that, but that's <laughs> right. Like if I can get a base hit every year, I'm happy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you're, you're looking for consistency. Although we are the, we love equity show, because even with me, I'm not always looking for equity. I'm looking for, like you said, that consistency, that base hit, because I want to be able to know that that passive income is coming in every month without fail. And like you said, knowing those markets, doing your due diligence, knowing the stats, knowing what's the you know, employment rate, what's the, you know, like you said, if it's, there's a run up of two to 3%, but it's consistent year over year, then you're ahead of inflation. So those are some of the things guys that you have to look at when you're truly looking to be a passive income investor. Again, right now in this hot market, everybody is selling everything and everybody is getting top dollar at everything. But right now it's the time to find that consistency, to find that balance that Dr. Axel was talking about and invest your money in those areas. So Dr. Axel, man, I really appreciate you being here and coming on. So before we leave, I want to put you on a hot seat. I want to put you on a hot seat. Let's 
ask and answer these questions um, as briefly as possible. But if you need to give us some in-depth and insight, please do so. So starting over, what would you do differently? Well, if I could start over right now, I would try to leverage as much as possible. Based on the fact that money is so cheap, um, I don't know. I mean, I know that for when money was 10% interest rate, people that used, were used to 15 felt that was cheap. But there's, I don't think it's realistic to assume that we get much closer to zero than we are, right? So I would leverage more than I used to. Okay, sounds great. So borrow money right now, guys, and put it in uh, passive income vehicles. What is one characteristic that you believe every high level investor need to have? I would say the term that I would use is discipline. Okay, discipline. So you, discipline. You, really, you really need to identify for yourself, and I say this to our clients all the time. If you haven't already, please sit down, find a quiet time, a quiet weekend, and really ask yourself and write down what are your core principles? And for, from a financial perspective, they, you should do it for everything, but in this case for financial. And then when you have identified those, be disciplined to live by them. Okay. Very sound advice. That is wisdom right there. So Dr. Axel, can you provide us any book recommendations? One book that I really liked a lot, I'm almost as far as going to say, I would call it seminal, is called The Wealthy Gardener by John Sephoric. Mm. I really liked it because he wrote it for his son as far as if you want to have a successful life as a business person and an investor, this is somebody else's story that he tells. It's it's really a good read. Wow, never read that, never heard of it. So I'm gonna add that to my reading list. So tell us, Dr. Axel, you have a manual that you provide for your clients and things like that. Kind of give us, kind of give us a brief synopsis of your manual and where can we find it? How can we get it? So, yeah, I call it the mindset manual and you can find it if you go to idealwealthgrower.com forward slash free, or if you just go to the website and wait for a little bit, like a minute or so, it pops up as a little pop-up to say, if you want the free mindset manual. The, the reason I created it is I found that you can fundamentally find two kinds of people. You find people that see themselves act and speak and think like victims. And you find people that have already realized I am the creator of my own future. Mm -hmm. And because in my observation, there are more people who see themselves as victims of all kinds of circumstances and things that they believe they don't have influence on. The mindset manual is actually in the first part, helping you to identify where do I fall on that spectrum for total victim to total creator and, or somewhere in between? Then how can you in the second part overcome some of those limiting beliefs that keep you in this victim state? And then in the third part, what are some of the things you can do to transition to become the creator of your own future, which I always hope also includes to say, okay, one of the, the easier ways to become a creator is to hook up with people who've already done it or are in the process. Like myself, I don't refer and recommend anything that I haven't done myself or I only use turnkey providers and refer only the ones I buy from. The lender, the insurance people, the 1031 exchange people. I've built this network and you know, if, instead of somebody having to go through 15 years of research and, and experience, 
you can connect with me, but you need to have this creative uh, creator mindset where you believe you can do it too. You can get those 15 or $20,000 together in your savings account to buy your first property. Mm -hmm. And I, I would challenge anybody, if you give yourself 20 to 24 months and you're really disciplined, you can get there to get to the starting line. There you go, guys. You heard it from someone that's actually doing it. Dr. Axel is in three different markets with his portfolio, and he's well on his way. So, Dr. Axel, in parting, what words of encouragement would you give someone that are sitting on a sideline right now, but they want to get in the game, but they just don't know if it's possible for them? What, what words would you, of encouragement would you give them? Well, the first thing, I, like I just mentioned, fifteen dollars to $20,000 gets you the first property. And I think if people are honest to themselves, they can see, even if they don't have it right now in their account, that they can be disciplined. I always say, put the first 10% of everything that comes in right away. When it comes in, put it into your savings accumulation account. Then you live the rest of your life for everything that comes in. You will see how quickly you will get to this fifteen to 20000 number and in, in the same vein, adopt a creator mindset where you can actually say, yes, I'm creating my own future. I know what my time freedom point number is, where I want to live and how much it's going to cost me. So I have basically the end point, the goal where I want to go. I know it costs 15 to 20,000 to get started. And then it's just repeat, repeat, repeat until you're there. There you go. Simple process. Very, very simple process. So Dr. Axel, if we want to get connected with you and learn more about this process, how can we reach you? How can we find you? Yeah, so you can either email me at axel at idealwealthgrower.com or just go to the website Idea Wealth Grower. We have a YouTube channel, Instagram, all these places under Idea Wealth Grower. And from there, you can just directly connect with us. So there you go, guys. Google Ideal Wealth Grower has a YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, everything is out there for you guys to find Dr. Axel. Well, Dr. Axel, I really appreciate it. I thank you so much for everything that you've done for us. You have provided for us today. In parting, guys, you all know what to do. You got the immediate information. Take action on that information. And remember to always enjoy the journey. So guys, man, just to recap, you see what Dr. Axel said. He said you can take fifteen dollars to $20,000. You just have to be disciplined to save up that money and you can get into your very first passive income rental property. So there's always a place to start. So you have to understand where you're going to start. One of the things that I tell most of the people that I'm with is start by understanding what is your liabilities and what are your assets? What do you have coming in and what is going out every month? And Dr. Axel definitely talked about that knowing he said with him and his wife, they looked at everything that they had going out and now they know exactly how much they need every month in order to live off the passive income. So what I tell you and what I instruct you to do today is look at your assets, look at your liabilities. You can do this easily by just downloading your bank statements and going through and saying, okay, how much are we spending on food? How much are we spending on gas? How much are we spending on our mortgage or our rent? Things like that. And then look at how much you have coming in and then invest the difference. 
invest the difference. So instead of spending the difference on small things like pop, soda pop and going out to lunch, going out to eat and things like that, you have to be disciplined in order to take you from where you are to where you want to be. It's not going to happen overnight. This is a process and you have to respect the process. So, but things that you are diligent about, you will respect in the end. So just a few words of parting here. Remember that the possibilities are out there for you. You just have to set a plan, have a purpose for your plan, and then start. So guys, it's Marcus. I really appreciate you again for being here. Dr. Axel provided a wealth of information, and I want you to take that information and put it into action. Do the small things and the small things will reward you with great things later. Okay, and party, signing off. Always remember to enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to today's show. I picked up some great actionable items and I'm sure you did as well. If so, let me know. You can always reach me via social media at facebook.com slash MRCS Maloney, Twitter at MRCS Maloney, and of course, IG at MRCS Maloney. You can also always reach me via email at mmaloney at equityri.com. Make sure you reach out to our guest as well. You can always find their contact information in the show notes below. If you have not subscribed already, what are you waiting for? Join the family. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star review. This is how we tell if we're providing you with what you need for your journey. If there's someone you would like for me to interview, or if there's a subject matter you would like for me to cover, please let me know. Finally, if you're looking for additional information about real estate investing, go to equityrealestateblog.com, also youtube.com slash Marcus Maloney. Until next time, family, always enjoy the journey.